is from Malachi chapter 3, verses 6 to 12. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the fields shall not fail to bear." says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us this day through your servant Malachi. Lord, We ask that your words would come to us and find root in our hearts. Give us open ears and your own spirit to give us a mind and a heart to understand and receive what it is that you would have us here today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may notice that we are jumping back from where we were last week. Last week, we were actually a little bit later in the text than we are now. Uh, I was initially uh, scheduled to, to preach this text last week, but I had a family emergency, and, and Nate was very gracious to jump in last week and preach in my stead, and he was also very gracious to reserve this text for me um, so that I could talk to you about everyone's favorite topic, which is tithing and money. Um, you know, doesn't, doesn't talking about money in your home lead to such sweet conversations? Um, maybe you spend some time looking over the budget with your spouse. I know that can be a very rich experience. Um, no, we don't like to talk about money. Uh, we don't because it is, it's uncomfortable. It's hard to make. It's, it's harder to keep. And we find in this day and age that the same dollar that we had three years ago isn't going as far as it did then as it is today. And not only that, uh, money is uncomfortable because we often feel like people are trying to get it from us, and most times they they are, and so we we distrust people. We feel like they're trying to take from us, and and they're interested only in what they can extract from us, and and not in us as people. And, and And more than that, money exposes us in uncomfortable ways. We have that that phrase, put your money where your mouth is. We, we believe that where our money goes reveals more clearly about what we really value, what we really love, than what we actually say with our mouths. So money is embarrassing. It's too revealing. It's too exposing of our hearts and our priorities and our weaknesses and our discontents. We have a mixed relationship with 
money. It has a grip on us that we don't like, that we are uncomfortable with. And it should not surprise you that this is also true at the time of Israel, where Malachi is, is preaching and teaching. The Israelites had a mixed relationship with money. They have many troubles. We've seen some of them already. They've doubted God's love. They've doubted his justice. They've, they've treated his worship indifferently and, and callously. And they have also misused what he has given them in the land. And that's what we're coming to today in this passage. So there's three things that I want you to see, three main things that I want you to see from this passage. And, and one of, the first one is God's generous patience. The second is God's gener- ungenerous people. And thirdly, God's generous promise. Generous patience, an ungenerous people, and a generous promise. Notice at the very beginning of the passage, the Lord says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. We see God's generous patience in his unchanging character. Maybe you have studied some theology. You you know that one of God's attributes, one of his character traits is immutability, meaning he does not change in himself. And that's true. But in in this passage, the focus is more more on God's covenant faithfulness on the way that he will not renege on his promise. He will not renounce his people. He is faithful. He keeps his promises. And this truth should surprise you. This should astound you when you consider the people that God is in in covenant with, the people of Israel. Because if God is unchanging, you could say that Israel is constantly changing. They are constantly unfaithful. God keeps the covenant, but they break it. They, they swear by it one day and violate it the next day. They, they promise one thing and they do another entirely different thing. The history of Israel is one, uh, it's a chronicle of rebellion and betrayal and unfaithfulness. To put it another way, you could say that Israel hasn't really changed much at all. God says that from the days of their fathers, they have turned away from his statutes and not kept them. He calls them children of Jacob, as if to remind them where they came from. You remember, you remember at the very beginning of this series in, in Malachi chapter 1, we talked about Jacob. You know Jacob, loving, caring, conscientious Jacob, who so careful to make sure that nobody loses anything that belongs to them. No, that's not Jacob at all. No, Jacob was the ankle grabber. He was the liar. He was the cheat. He swindled his brother out of his inheritance, his brother Esau. And then, for good measure, he elaborately deceived his blind father in order to extract the blessing from him instead of letting Esau get it. And he did that with his mom's help. Like, that's really messed up. Jacob is not a good person. And, And his character traits of just looking out for himself, not for his family or anybody else, are being carried out now, are being reflected in his descendants. Israel's people are also looking out only for themselves and are willing to hurt people around them in order to serve themselves. 
They're just like their ancestors, just as unfaithful, just as changing. And yet, God has not changed. He patiently pursues them. God brings up this this history of sin and unrighteousness, yes, but not to condemn Israel, not to put them down. You know, sometimes sometimes if somebody comes to you and, and presents some wrong that you have done to them, it's not because they they want to help you. It's because they want to get a one-up on you. They want to feel good about themselves by putting you down. That's not God's spirit here. That's not what God is doing. God is not like us. He doesn't say, take secret pleasure in, in, in showing people their wrongs. God reveals this to them, reveals their sin to them in order to restore them. He wants them to be restored to relationship with him and with one another. And so he says, return to me and I will return to you. This is repentance language. God is patient to see his people repent. He's patient to see you repent. So you may sin, you may wander, you may fail, fail fantastically, and you may turn away from the Lord, but here's a wonderful thing. When you return to God, though you have turned away, He will not turn you away. That's why we've been reciting these words, this passage in our confession for the last several weeks. We we say that God says, return to me and I will return to you. We know that God doesn't change because people change all the time. And if God was one like us, if he was like us, he probably would have given up on his people long, long ago, and left them to their own sin and destruction. But precisely because God is not like us, he's not like us, he is prodigally, generously patient, we have reason to hope when we repent and turn to him, that we will, and we have confidence that we'll find mercy with him. God is generously patient with his people so that they would repent. And that brings us to the people themselves. God's ungenerous people. How do they respond to God's patience, to his calling them to repentance? God says, return to me, and I will return to you. And the people say, how shall we return? This is not the sincere inquiry of a pricked conscience. No, they are hardened. It's the 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 indignant reflex of an insensitive heart. How shall we return? What could we possibly do more for you than we are already doing? They have no sense of any need to repent, no sense to turn or return to God. In fact, the way, from their perspective, they believe that it's God who has turned from them and that he's the one who needs to hold up his end of the bargain. He's the one who needs to give them what they want, what they desire. And so they are indignant, and they're insensible to their own sin. They don't know how far they've fallen. And so they asked, how shall we return? Now, whether it was sincere or not, it wasn't. God answers, and he gets specific. He gets real specific, and that's the thing about repentance. It's inconveniently specific. It would be very very nice, very convenient for us if repentance were something abstract and, and generic. You know, you do something wrong, you can say, I'm sorry. You can say, I repent. 
No content, no object whatsoever. It could be anything. But if you get specific, then you look your sin in the face and you have to turn from it. That's what God's doing. He's bringing their sin before them to show them what it is so that they would turn. Because if you don't know what it is, how will you know from what to turn? Sin. Repentance. Repentance is, and it must be, specific. And so God says, you are robbing me. You are robbing me. How are we robbing you? You can imagine the eye roll there. How are we robbing you? And God says, in your tithes and contributions. And, and in the Hebrew, it's actually a little bit more, more blunt. He just says, it's barely, it's barely two words, tithes and contributions. It's as if the bare mention of these words should awaken them to where they have fallen short, to where their hearts actually are. He just mentions tithes and contributions. See, in the, and then he says, you are cursed with a curse because you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. God calls them nation, and he, and he uses a unique word. He, he says uh, a word that is normally applied to foreign nations. So God is saying, not, not only are you robbing me, you're acting like other nations. You're not even acting like my people anymore. So what is it? What are they doing that makes them act more like other nations than, than God's people? Well, it's the tithes. It's, it's the contributions. They're not bringing what they had committed to bring to the Lord. Their tithes and contributions, temple sacrifices and offerings. And, and they've actually, those were laid out in the covenant back in the law of Moses, but actually within living memory of the people who Malachi is speaking to, they actually recommitted to and renewed the covenant. And they specifically said, you can find this in Nehemiah, that they would bring their tithes to the temple. And so they've promised one thing, and then just a few years later, they've fallen right back into neglecting it and shirking it. And so they have come under the curse of the covenant. Their fields are drying up for lack of rain, and there are insects, pests, locusts that are coming and devouring what crops they do have, and so things are hard. See, in, in, in in that time, when they were under the law of Moses, under the covenant from Sinai, the, the fruitfulness of the land was a barometer of Israel's spiritual health. So generally speaking, generally speaking, there, there were exceptions. When, when things were going good in Israel, when they had their hearts aligned with God and they were following his commandments, obedient to the covenant, then the land would be fruitful. There would be prosperity. That, that, that spiritual life would be reflected by life from the land. But when they turned from the Lord, the land would start to dry up, and the pests would come, and the troubles would come. And, and that trouble, God said that trouble would come, and it was meant to function as a warning. It was meant to function as a call to repent, to return to God. But that is precisely what the Israelites are not doing. You know, they had the scriptures, they, they knew what the covenant said, but they were closing their hearts to it. And instead, they persisted in a, a downward spiral. A downward spiral. So they, they, they withhold their tithes and their offerings. They, they shirk the tithe and the offering, and so they come under the curse, and they have less. And because they have less, they, they shirk and the tithe and the offering even more. It just continues down, down, down. Why? Because they have set their hope on 
the land and on its produce. And instead of the God who gave them the land and who makes it productive. So they're trapped in this downward spiral. Now, why? Why does God care? Why does he bring up tithes and offerings? What's the big deal? Aren't there more important things to talk about? You know, we've talked about many things in Malachi up to now. Why does God now talk about the tithes and the offerings? Well, it turns out that these are actually pretty important parts of the national and religious life of Israel. Uh, The tithe was 10% of the agricultural product of the land, and people were to bring that to the temple. And it actually had three different functions, three, three main functions. Uh, the first one was that it supported the temple worship, and specifically the people who were ministering in the temple, so the Levites and the priests. That's the, the people that God set apart for himself to minister to the nation. So you know, if you've been in the men's Bible study for this, this fall, we've been going through the book of Joshua. And one of, one of the things that comes up in the book of Joshua often is that as they're dividing the land and the different tribes are getting their plots, the areas that they're going to cultivate and grow, they're going to become farmers, the Levites don't get land because the Lord is their inheritance. And so the Levites have to depend on their brothers and sister Israelites to support them so that they can actually support their family and so they can do their job at the temple. So that's the first use. It's really important. It involves people, not just, not just an institution. A second use is that the tithe was used to support the poor, the, the widowed, the fatherless, and the sojourner. Four classes of people who were outside of normal social supports. Like normally your, your, your family and your relatives are going to take care of you, but what if you don't have relatives that, that can take care of you? What if you are a foreigner in the land? What if you, your, your husband has passed away or your father has died? There's nobody to support you. And, and so the tithe was used to take care of those people who had fallen outside of the normal structures of support. And then, there, and then the third use, the third use of the tithe is actually maybe most surprising to us. So people would bring their, their cattle, if they were close, and they'd bring their crops to the temple, and they would, they would fill the storehouses. But God instructed people who were really far away, you know, in the north of the country, the extreme south of the country, he instructed them to sell what they would give for tithe, and turn it into money, and then travel with their family to the temple, and buy what ever their hearts desired, whatever was pleasing to them, and take that, that food that they buy there and come before the Lord and feast. Feast with your family. Feast with your neighbors. And it was like a big Thanksgiving dinner. It was like a big Thanksgiving dinner to give thanks to God for giving the land to them. See, under, undergirding, undergirding the tithe... And, and all contributions to the temple, was the, the recognition that the land ultimately belonged to God. He was the owner, and he gave it to his people as a grant. And so when Israel brought their tithes and their offerings to the temple, there was actually a script. Uh, there was like a, a, a few lines that they would say, basically saying, we have been saved from Egypt. God has cared for us in the wilderness, and he's brought us into this fruitful land. And look, here's the fruit of the land that God gave us, and now we're giving it in thanks to the Lord. But what does God do with it when he receives that, that tithe? He doesn't keep it for himself. He immediately turns it around to care for his people. See how important this is in the, in the life of the nation? 
tithe was a big deal. The tithe revealed the heart of the people. It revealed their heart towards God, and it revealed their heart towards one another. If you look, you'll see that um, God's generosity in this way was meant to issue in the people's generosity towards one another. You see, these tithes and these offerings were not, were not bare rituals that God was making them go through just for the sake of it. No, they were, they were tutors, tutors of the heart, woven into the religious and social fabric of the nation. Because if you were to shirk, you were to shirk the tithe and neglect it, then that strikes at the heart of the religious life because it's the temple. The temple starts to suffer and the Levites start to suffer and they have to leave their work at the temple and, and, and fend for themselves. And it also neglects the poor, the widow, the orphan, and the sojourner. And then it, it, it means you're no longer giving thanks for everything that God has given you. So it's, it's, it's woven in deeply into the meaning of why they're there and, and what they're supposed to do with their life there. It's not just a bare ritual. So they were robbing God. They were robbing God of what he had devoted for, to the care of his people. And they received God's generosity, but then they just heaped it up for themselves. What does this have to say to us today? You know, we, we don't live in the Old Testament times. We're not under the, the law of Moses. We're not under the covenant We don't have a temple to bring sacrifices to. Chances are most of you don't have cattle and crops that you could then take 10% of and and tie to the church. If you brought them here, we probably wouldn't take them. Um, We we wouldn't know what to do with them. But no, the the tithe has a lot to teach us about how we handle our money, how we handle the resources God has given us. The scripture speaks often about how to use money. Uh, it's true that you will not find a command in the New Testament to tie 10% of your income or whatever you have. Um, in fact, the New Testament goes much further than that. It's inconvenient that way. Uh, in Romans 12, we read in the first verse that we are to offer our entire lives, our bodies, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Your whole life is devoted to worship, not just 10%. When you look at our New Testament reading from today, we read about the Macedonian Christians who, who had experienced God's generosity in their own life by saving them, redeeming them in, in Christ Jesus, and that resulted in a wonderful, sacrificial generosity on their part. They gave according to their means, Paul says, and also beyond their means. It means they gave until it hurt they deprived themselves in order to relieve the, the pains and the hurts of the saints in Jerusalem. That's beautiful. It's a beautiful image of what God's generosity ought to do to us as, as people, as believers. But often that's not us. Often that's not us. We, we betray the same ungenerous spirit that the Israelites are showing in our passage today. We set our hopes on our possessions, on our money, and we we think that we have some security in them, that they will rescue us out of our troubles, or that they will give us the life that we want. When you think about, when you come into some money, what is your first thought when you come 
into some newfound money, whether an inheritance or a bonus, probably your first thought is, how can I improve my lifestyle? Or how can I get the thing that I have been wanting for a long time? That's probably your first thought. Uh, going through this, going through this passage has been convicting for me because I've, I've found this, this same spirit in myself uh, in different seasons of my life. You know, be walking down a street and I'll look up at an apartment that's a lot nicer than the one that I have now or I'll drive by and I'll say, oh, I would really like to have that house. And I look at what it would take to get there like, hmm, might be able to swing it, might be able to make that work. But then what will happen is my, my time and my resources and my money will be tied down in such a way that I will not be able to be generous to the people around me. I'll have less to give to the people that God has called me to serve. We often think about how we can serve ourselves first with our monies and not about how to advance the gospel or how to care for those in need or how to celebrate and show hospitality. The Israelites came under a curse because they sought refuge in their wealth they sought refuge in their wealth instead of in their God who had saved them out of slavery. And so they set their hope on that land and it was failing them. Now, when you, if you misuse what God has given you, you're not going to fall under a curse in the same way that the Israelites did. You're, again, you're not under the Mosaic Covenant. So like, if you're going through hardship, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're being unfaithful to the Lord. But it's good, it's good to ask. It's good to ask, am I being faithful? And Maybe God is trying to communicate something to me here. But you, you won't fall under the, the curse of the covenant, but you might come under a curse, a kind of curse. Because if you, whether you have much, a lot of money, or a lot of wealth, or little, if you set your hope on those things, if you set your hope on it, it will become a curse to you. Because it is a vain hope. You will always want more. We live in Williamson County. It's top 20 wealthiest counties in the country. And you can always feel poor compared to somebody here. Like, you just look around. The human heart is a bottomless pit of unfulfilled desires. And you will try to satisfy it with riches, but it will never be satisfied. You remember maybe the, the quote from John D. Rockefeller. He, he was asked, you know, how much money is enough? How much is enough? He's one of the wealthiest men in the world. How much is enough? And he said, one dollar more. It doesn't satisfy. It doesn't satisfy. You'll be left empty. You'll be left insecure and craving. That is kind of curse. But as it turns out, and counterintuitive though it may be, we read, in our, again, in our New Testament reading today, that it benefits us to give money away, to let go of it. Because if you don't, as you clinch on to the money that you have, it's also clinching on to you. It's holding on to you, onto your heart, and it's squeezing tight, and it's twisting your heart and shape and tearing it out of shape, squeezing it out of shape. That's what's happening to the people of Israel. Their heart has been so affected that it has closed towards God. It's closed towards their neighbors. And again, it's, they're no longer thankful. They've become bitter and resentful. That's what money will do to you when you set your hope on it. But when you let it go, when you loosen your grip, 
its grip on you also loosens. So you must, the text that we have before us today ask us as well, are we robbing God? Are you robbing God? Are you gripped by the wealth that you are gripping? Just as the Israelites received the land from God as a grant, so you receive your life, everything that you are, everything that you have as a gift, as a grant from God to do with as he would have you use it, not as you would have you use it. Your time, your talents, your labor, and yes, your money are all included in that. All are gifts from God. Trusts meant to be used for the purposes of the king. Maybe you can remember in in the Gospel of Matthew the, the parable of the talents where Jesus describes the kingdom of God as a place where a king gives talents, amounts of money to his servants, and they are to go out and earn a return for the kingdom, a return on the investment that God has made in them. And that's what God calls us to do today. And that's, that's where we get the word talent from in the first place. The talent of a unique ability or, or, or skill that you have, all of that is from, we, we, we have that usage now because of the story that Jesus told about talents, which was at first just a measurement of money, but now it represents the gift that God has given us. How are we using it? How are you using the gifts? How are you stewarding the gifts that God has given you? to advance the gospel, to see other people come to worship the Lord, to care for those in need in your life, close to you, and maybe also a little bit further from you. Who are the people that you are called to serve and show generosity to? How can you posture yourself to be hospitable? Are you ready when people come to you to be hospitable? Again, we don't have a, we don't have a command to tithe in the New Testament, but man, the tithe is a really good instructor for us. Remember, it's a tutor of the heart. We are not, we are not reflexively or naturally generous. You're not going to fall into hospitality and generosity. You have to really work at it. You have to tutor yourself, and the tithe is that kind of tutor. You have to systematically plan to be generous, because if you don't plan for it, you're probably not going to do it. If you don't plan for it, you're not going to do it. But when you see that all of life, when you see that all of your life is a gift from God to be used for his purposes, that it's an abundant generosity that he has shown to you, then that ought to do something to your heart and cause you to be generous as well, to imitate his generosity. And then you'll be free to use money as opposed to being used by it. It's God's God's ungenerous people. God has an ungenerous people But he gives this people a wonderful, generous promise. See, God confronts the sin of his people, the the shirking of the tithes and the contributions. He calls them to repentance, and he, he gives them a promise in the midst of that call. He says, test me. In other words, trust me. Have faith in me. How? By bringing in the full tithe bringing in all that the law commands. Because if you, if you trust the king, you're going to obey him, even in the details. And he promises, if you do that, to open the windows of heaven and rain down blessing until there is no more need. There will be no more locusts, no more crop failures. The nation, will be called, the nation of Israel will be called blessed. Other nations will see them and call them blessed. And their land will be a land of Delight. 
It kind of reminds you of the Garden of Eden, a land of delight. God is saying that your land will be like, like Eden. And, and, and actually, Israel has been called, that land has been called that earlier in, in the scriptures, even in the book of Genesis, it's called uh, a land like Eden. Now, this, this sounds like a pretty good deal. It sounds like a pretty good deal that, okay, bring in the tithes and then God will open up heaven and rain down blessing. Um, and it kind of sounds like what we, talked, what we heard last week in the sermon about this transactional relationship with God where if you just give him this amount of money, then he will exponentially bless you with this amount of money. And, and that is totally wrong. <laughs> totally wrong. And, and that's, that's the problem here is that you're, you're trying to get, you're trying to use God as a means to get the thing that you really want. Whereas God is always ever presenting himself as the thing that you really need and that you ought to want and desire. And so if you're trying to get something else, through God, you've totally missed it. You've totally missed it. And, and, and yet, still, this passage has been grievously misunderstood and misapplied in that way, where people treat it like a strategy to get wealthy. Well, that's not what it is. It's not, it's not a, a life plan for wealth development. God is not your cosmic financial consultant. That's not what he's doing here. He wants different things. He doesn't promise that, he doesn't promise that giving to a church will you know, result in your own personal prosperity. Remember, this is the this is the covenant that Israel was under, the, the law of Moses. These things had purposes. It was a national covenant, not a personal covenant. So you can't individualize this. And moreover, this covenant has been superseded by the new covenant in Christ. Now, that's not to say that God is not interested in blessing you. God is interested in blessing you. He's interested in giving good gifts to his children. He delights to give good gifts to his children. You know, you know Christmas is coming. You, you maybe have already tucked away some, some gifts at your house in a closet under some blankets and uh, you, you just got the, you saw a perfect gift for your family or, or a friend or a child and you've hidden it away and, and you're looking forward to that time where you can give it and see the joy and delight on your friend or your, or your family member. Maybe a, a hug. Maybe the recognition is like, oh, wow, you really know me. Like, you knew just the right thing to give me. And, and they, they feel your love through that. That's what you do. You communicate your love through gifts. And, and God does as well. But what if, what if the message doesn't get across? What if all of the joy and the delight from the gift just terminates and ends on the gift and it never makes its way back to the giver? That would be a huge disappointment, right? That would be... Uh, very discouraging. But what if not only that happens, but, but the gift becomes a source of conflict and contention in your house? You know, we've, we have two little boys, and we have seen this very thing. We give a nice, good gift, and within five minutes, it is the source of all kinds of fighting and, and conflict, and you're just left wondering, and I spent this money, this good money, to buy a fight. <laughs> And uh, I could have gotten that for free. <laughs> you probably, in those moments, and we've done this well, you take the gift away. Because it's, the point is not the gift. The point is the relationship and the love that the, the gift points to. And, and so here, here's what I'm trying to say, is that the possession of this land that God has given as a gift to his people, it was never meant to be the ultimate blessedness 
of God's people, of Israel. If it were, if it were supposed to be the ultimate blessedness, why did God take it away? He took it away twice. You know, they've just come back from being in exile. They lost the land, and now God has returned it to them. And in fact, after the life of Jesus, they lost it again when the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. If that was the ultimate end, then why would God take it away? Well, it's because it wasn't. It wasn't the ultimate end. John Calvin talks about how in the Old Testament, you find that God is, through visible material blessings, he's leading his people up by the hand, as like little children, to hope in a heavenly blessing, a heavenly land, a heavenly inheritance. There really is a land of delight. There is a city. There's a city that God has repaired. The designer and builder of that city is God. And what makes that city a delight is not how wealthy it is or how prosperous its land. No, what makes it a delight is because of the one who dwells there, the one who resides in that place. The land will be a delight because it will be the place where God and man get to dwell together. People will dwell with their generous God. And there will be no more need because all of their needs will be met by God. They'll be satisfied God promises to give himself to his people. Now, if you, turn, if you turn to the New Testament, you don't see much improvement spiritually from Malachi's day into the New Testament days. In fact, you'll read, if you read like the Gospel of Luke, Jesus has a lot to say to the religious leaders and, and the wealthy in the land about the way they use their wealth. And it sounds a lot like Sounds a lot like the spirit that was going, happening in the people during Malachi's time. But here's what's one, wonderful. God is so generous. He didn't wait for his people to repent and start bringing in the full tithe and the full, all the contributions in order to keep his promise. He went and fulfilled his promise anyway. He opened the windows of heaven anyway, and he rained down blessing. And it wasn't rain that came down. It was God that came down. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Jesus Christ came to earth, and he didn't just give 10% of himself, didn't just give a tithe. He gave his whole self, his whole life, his body and soul, his mind, his spirit. And he gave them to the point of death, even death on a cross, all to deliver us from sin and death and to bring us to himself. To put it another way, we heard in the New Testament reading today that, well, here, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. He was stripped of everything, even his own life, in order to give you everything. And he rose from the grave, and in power he received an inheritance that can never be lost. And now he offers that eternal, unending inheritance to you. He offers that to you. This is, this is generosity that we cannot comprehend. We cannot comprehend it. It's not meant to be comprehended. 
It's meant to be received in faith and in thanksgiving. And if you do receive it, if you do receive this this wonderful truth that Christ has, has died for you, he has given you himself so that you would be free of sin and death and that you would have an inheritance with him forever. If you receive that, it changes everything. It changes everything about your life. You're no more captive to the distorting, malforming power of money. You'll be free to be generous as God has been generous to you. You'll stop trying to build miniature kingdoms here on earth. Just trying to get just a little bit of a bigger house, a little bit of a better car. No, you'll stop trying to build that kingdom and you'll start to hope in the kingdom that Christ has purchased for you. You'll have a different kingdom, one that is never going to depreciate, never going to need to be repaired. No, the Lord has prepared it for us and it's eternal. You'll no longer be a slave to the uncertainty of markets and riches, but you'll use these this worldly gifts to serve others, to draw other people into the worship of God, to draw other people into the gospel, to know the same God who has given you an inheritance that can never be lost. You want to share that with others. You'll be free to talk about money more freely. It wouldn't be that uncomfortable topic that, that it often is because your heart's not tied up with it. But rather, your heart is tied up and fixed on God who has richly provided everything for you. When I was thinking of this, of this passage today, I couldn't help but think of that final verse in the hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. This is how it goes. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. This world is far, far too small a gift. It's far smaller than the gift that God has already given us. God has given us himself. And that's what he calls us to. And if he has given us all of himself, how can we not respond by giving all of ourselves, our time, our money, our whole lives to him in faith? That's what he's calling the people of Israel to do. That's what he's calling us to do, to Test him to trust him with all of us, the whole of it. Will you trust him? We pray. Heavenly Father, we, we praise you for your incomprehensible generosity. You have loved us in such a way that we cannot even conceive We cannot understand the depth of your love. We cannot understand how one could love a people as we are. We have been ungenerous, Lord. And yet you have persisted in your generosity. You are unchanging. And you have given us yourself in your son, Jesus. Lord, I pray that that truth would grip each and every one of us in this room. That we would see that all of our needs are richly provided for in Jesus. And that because of that, we are free to walk through this world with our hearts unbound by the love of money, but rather free to love you and the ones that you have put around us to serve. Lord, we we pray that we would have this heart. In Jesus' name, amen.